This morning, we're going to look at three amazing stories from the Old Testament. Three lesser-known, obscure, short, yet amazing stories. But before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of background on where we are and where we've been. We're continuing on in our series called Choices. And we've been going through the books of First and Second Samuel, looking at the lives of Samuel and Saul, Jonathan, David, and beyond. And right now at the story, we're at the point where Saul has died, and Jonathan has died, and David has significantly, and I believe genuinely, mourned the loss of these two men. And he's still out in the wilderness, and he goes before God, and he asks God, is it time for me to go back into the promised land? And God says, yes, it's time. So David moves back into central Judah, and um, I want to show you a map here. These are the 12 tribes. So David moves back into central Judah, and he's anointed king of Judah, but Judah only, not the entire land. That's yet to come, just Judah. You see, to the north of him, their king is Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is king in the north, and David is king of this tribe here in the south. So it's a transition time. David has arrived, and yet he hasn't really arrived. And we know that Saul's kingdom was established, and yet it disintegrated because of his pride, because of his self-importance, because of his impatience and his disobedience. And as David would begin this kingship, he would have to begin it with this reliance upon God, with this courage to trust that God was in control and God was going to give direction. And so that's what he's doing as he comes into Judah and he's anointed king. Now, because he's in the south and there's another king in the north, it kind of gives for some interesting stories in, in 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. We see a lot of civil war going on. We have this guy named Abner. Abner, he's the captain of the armies of the north. And we have this guy named Joab. And Joab is the captain of David's army. And they're in conflict. And so as you open up the scripture in 2 Samuel, you see these two guys coming out to battle each other. And instead of putting their forces against each other full force, they each pick 12 men. And the 12 men come out. And they all stab each other at the same time and die. So much for that. So the battle continues to rage on, and Joab chases Abner, and Abner goes back up into the north. Well, he gets sick of working for Ishbosheth. He feels like he's just not doing a job, and the anointing's on David anyway. So he goes south and says, David, I want to join forces with you. And David's happy. He thinks that's a good thing. But Joab isn't happy, because Joab knows that there's no room for two captains of the army. So Joab pulls him aside, and he kills him, which makes David sad. And then eventually, these two guys murder Ishbosheth in the north. They cut off his head and they bring it back to David, thinking it will make David happy, but it makes David sad. And then those two guys get put to death. And that's where we are. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, it's just, it's a messy transition, right? It's just not how things necessarily are going to work out. So he, David's there, but he's not quite there. His, his full kingship is coming. Well, this morning, I want to look at a storyline that runs concurrent with this story. It, it's chronologically in the same place, just numerically in the chapters, it's not. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you want to grab one out of the pew, it's on page 528. We're going to talk about David's mighty men this morning. 
Scripture tells us that there were three men who stood above the rest, and then there were 30 mighty men. And here's how they came about. You see, as Saul was actively pursuing David to kill him, David fled to the wilderness. And we've seen so much of that story as we've gone along. Well, when David was in the wilderness, people rallied to him. 600 people rallied to him, men and women and their families. And of these men that came, they came for companionship, but they also came to be his his guardians. And this is where the mighty men arose. And I have to be honest with you, I have always loved the passages in the Old Testament about the mighty men. There's just something about them. And partly because I always wondered how I would fit into this group of men, right? I mean, what are the chances that they needed a scrawny guy who's not too strong, but spry (laughs) in their ranks? There's just something about them that is intriguing to me. I mean, these are the superheroes of David's time. If kids played with action figures back then, they would be the action figures. If there were trading cards, you could see kids being like, oh, I got a Joshua beam. Can I trade it for your Shama? Yeah, here's my Shama. Let's trade, let's trade those. These, the stories were written about these guys. The songs were sung about these guys. When little kids dressed up for Halloween, they dressed up like these guys, right? These were the mighty men. And we're going to look at three stories, three amazing stories about these men. I read a quote from C.S. Lewis a while ago that he says this, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies and adults as well, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. And so this morning, we are going to hear about heroic courage. And we're going to look at these men and, and get a glimpse into their lives just a little bit. But I don't want us to start this by saying, well, that's the Old Testament and this is now, or those were the mighty men and I'm anything but a mighty man. Because there's character traits, there's qualities that we can look at and that we can see and that we can apply to our own lives. So I want us to have kind of an open mind as we jump into these stories. The first one happens in 2 Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 20. There was also Benaiah, and that's who we're going to talk about for a minute. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. And then here's the part we're going to focus on. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Awesome. Right? That is so cool. Now, this is one of those times in Scripture where you just wish the author of this story would have given a little more detail. Like, please, give me more. Like, like maybe less in the book of Numbers and, and more here. I want a bigger story here because I want to know what happened. We don't have a lot of the background. We know that it's cold outside. We know that there's snow on the ground that you could see your breath, but we don't know how this confrontation started. We don't know if, if this lion was like tracking Benaiah down. We don't know if this was a lion that was, while they were in the wilderness, kind of stalking them here or there. We don't know how that went, but we do know that there was a confrontation and that confrontation led to a chase. We also know that Benaiah was wired a little bit differently. We can gain that from the story as well. Because why would you chase something that everybody else in their right mind runs away from? He didn't have a rifle. He didn't have a Jeep. He had him. And he chased this lion. Now, we know it wasn't a fair fight either because lions can run up to 35 miles an hour. They can leap up to 30 feet. When a lion bites... Its jaw pressure is at 650 pounds per square inch. Lions will crush you. They will kill you. But 
here's this guy somehow chasing this lion. And as he chases this lion, the lion falls into a pit. And here's the moment where you go, oh, thank the good Lord. The lion fell into a pit. Because everybody knows that it's crazy to chase lions. But it's even crazier to chase lions into pits on snowy days. You just don't do that. When it falls into the pit, that's when the adrenaline kind of starts to wear off and you start to shake and you're like, what was I thinking? Why was I doing that? Why would I chase a lion? Have you ever chased something that you didn't want to catch? Have you ever had that experience? When my family lived in Atlanta, my wife and I and my two girls who were younger at the time were in the backyard, and we noticed there was some movement over by the fence. So we all went over to look and see what the movement was. And when we got there, there was like a five-foot black snake there by the fence, a 35-foot <laughs> black snake, which is what it seemed like. It gets longer every time I tell it. No, it was, it was a five-foot black snake there by the fence, and it just it freaked me out. I got to be honest. I don't like snakes. It's biblical. (laughs) We're not supposed to like snakes. Look at Genesis. So we get there. And and so my daughter scream and my wife screams and and I kind of scream, but manly, (laughs) this manly scream. And so they run away and I run away too, but I run away to get a shovel so that I can be manly, but with a blunt instrument. And so I come back to the fence and I'm we have a chain link fence and our neighbors have a wood fence and it's in between the two. So I'm just like smacking the side of the fence and it's kind of slithering off and I'm very, hmm. you know, you know how you do it when you're chasing something, but I don't want to catch it. There's no way I want to catch that thing. So I smacked the edge of the fence until it went into the neighbor's yard. <laughs> and then it's their problem, Right. Because when it goes into the neighbor's yard, it's not your problem anymore. When the lion falls into the pit, you've done your job. Normal people don't chase lions into the pit unless you're Benaiah. And then he goes into the pit and he kills it. And if you look at verse 23 of that chapter at the end there, it says, and David made him captain of his bodyguard, right? If you are applying to be captain of a bodyguard, That's the only story your resume needs. That's it. You can just see David saying, well, what have you done heroic? And he's like, well, there was the lion in the snowy pit. And David's like, you're hired. Done. You don't need any other story. You just need the lion head. See? Okay. good. His courage was amazing. And we trust that this story was was heroic because it's held up in scriptures as heroic, that he was doing it for a good cause, that Benaiah didn't just lose a bet. Or have some kind of dare, and then he started chasing this lion. It's heroic. It's courageous. And we can marvel at his bravery and his heart and his strength and his determination and his boldness. And we want to be courageous like that. God, when he was commissioning Joshua in the first chapter of that book, three different times in three verses, he says, be strong and courageous. Psalm 27, 14 says, be brave and courageous. Courage is something that we aspire to. It's something that when we read the Old Testament stories and we read about David and Jonathan and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel, and we look at them and we say, that's how I want to be. Those are the stories. I want to have that courage. Because courage is so foundational to everything else we do. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point. 
which means that all of our virtues find their beginnings in courage. It takes courage to do those virtuous things that we're supposed to do. So when we are called to courage, it is something foundational that allows us to do good things. So we could stop at this point and we could say, what lions should we be chasing? We could talk about how sometimes it's way too risky to play it safe. Sometimes you can't stop. You got to go into the pit, but I don't want to land there yet. I want to ask this question. Is courage enough? Is it just that we need more courage? I want to look at another story of another one of the mighty men. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to flip back a few chapters. It's going to be 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 18. Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, the three sons of Zeruiah, were among David's forces that day. So let me give you a little bit of background into who these three guys were. These were mighty men, and they were also David's nephews. First Chronicles chapter 2 tells us that David had two sisters, Abigail and Zeruiah. And Zeruiah had three boys, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel. They were three mighty men. But all three of these men, as you read through this narrative, you see that they are blind to the hand of God. They're blind to the promises of God, and they're in it for their own good and for their own glory. David is leading towards peace and justice, and he's worshiping God, and he's concerned about holiness. And these three guys, as you see in these stories as we go through, they're in it for war, and they're causing strife, and they want to promote their own agenda. To put David on the throne and give David power gives them more power, and so that's why we're in it. So much so that 2 Samuel chapter 3, David says, even though I am the anointed king, these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil deeds. They wanted that position of power. They wanted that authority. They wanted to be known. So let's read what happens to Asahel. At the end of of verse 18 there, it says that he could run like a gazelle, which honestly I think is pretty cool. If something's going to be written about you in scripture, he could run like a gazelle is not a bad thing. The NIV says he was as fleet-footed as the wild gazelle which, I don't know, just sounds awesome to me. So he's fast and famous. Verse 19, he began chasing Abner. Now, we know Abner is the captain of the army of the north. So he's chasing the lead guy. He began chasing Abner. He pursued him relentlessly, not stopping for anything. So we already know that he's out of control. We already know that he's chasing the wrong things. But he begins chasing Abner. And I don't know what he's thinking as this goes on. Is, is he thinking, oh, man, if I get their number one guy, that makes me the number one guy. Kids will be playing with my action figures. Nobody will trade my card. They'll be writing songs about me. Maybe I'll get a bonus, a little bump in pay. I don't know. But he's chasing him. And he's relentless. And he's courageous. And nothing is stopping him. When Abner looked back and saw him coming, he called out, is that you, Asahel? Yes, it is, he replied. Go fight someone else, Abner warned. Take on one of the younger men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel kept right on chasing Abner. Again, Abner shouted to him, get away from here. I don't want to kill you. How could I ever face your brother Joab again? But Asahel refused to turn back. They're they're having a conversation. One's running for his life. One's running to try and kill him. And they're talking back and forth like, how you doing? Hey, you need to turn to the side. Turn to the left. Nope, not going to do it. Okay, turn to the right. Nope, not going to do it. So he keeps running at him. 
So Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He stumbled to the ground and died there. If you can just get this picture, it's, it's almost just like he just stopped. Abner stops and holds his spear back, and Asahel just runs right up through it and dies. Eventually, you might catch what you're chasing. And if you're chasing the wrong thing, it could kill you. And it says that at that point, everyone who came by that spot stopped and stood still when they saw Asahel lying there. It's as if they come, oh, David's going to be so sad. It's one of his nephews. But more so than that, he was a mighty man. He was courageous. He was a warrior. How could this happen to him? Is courage enough? I mean, Asahel had courage. He had what's in it for me courage. He had ready, fire, aim courage. But is courage enough? Because what is courage without a cause? And truly, what is courage without the cause of Christ? It's really just pride. It's really just self-importance. It's it's arrogance. I mean, what's the end result of your courage? There's so many people courageous in this world for things that are less than ideal. YouTube is full of their video exploits. You can see courage, but to what end? So I want you to take a moment right now, and I want you to think about this. What are you chasing? I mean, what are you passionate about? What are you pursuing? What is it that you're chasing? And what would happen to you if you caught it? I think a lot of us bear scars from chasing things that we shouldn't have chased. Maybe ask yourself this question, is it eternal? You see, courage matters. Courage is foundational. Courage is hugely important, but it's Courage for a cause. It's courage in the right direction. I was thinking about a question this past week, a a primary question that we ask all children. Well, aside from why did you do that? I mean, that's a question that we ask all children. Why did you take a Sharpie and tattoo the couch? Why did you put a cookie in the DVD player? Why did you? We ask children why all the time. But here's the question that we ask all children. What do you want to be when you grow up? Don't we do that? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, I think it's changed. The world is changing. Uh, Here's some of the answers that kids give nowadays. I looked at this recent survey. Secret agent, superhero, zookeeper, pop star, president, dancer, princess, or king. Either way, those are both lofty professions. YouTuber. (laughs) It's a different world, right? Different world than when we grew up. But what we're saying when we ask that question is this, what do you want to chase? What do you want to chase for the rest of your life? What do you want to pursue? What are you going to run after? Students, and I think in particular college students, you're at this point in your life where you are pretty much making all of the decisions that will shape your future. What do you want to chase? 
And I'm not talking about your job. Your job isn't who you are. I'm talking about what is it that you want to pursue and what would happen to you if you caught it? How about adults, those of you who are a little further on in years? And if you're asking yourself, do I fit that criteria, by your very asking, yes, you do. You see, somewhere in our past, we've made decisions that have set us on this track that we are just continuing on. And I don't know what really the root of those decisions were. I don't know what the foundational things were that set you on the course of your life. If you're honest with yourself, maybe it was materialism. Maybe the root of that was just comfort. Like, I just, I just want to have a comfortable life and I can do some nice things, but mostly I want comfort. And maybe that sets you on this course. Maybe it was acceptance. I just, I just want people around me to like me. And I, I know I wrestle with that. I wrestle with making decisions based on comfort, based on acceptance. I know at my best, I'm doing my job just to point to Jesus. But at my worst, I'm doing my job so people say, Good job, way to go. And oftentimes we think that it's not so much a question of what am I going to be when I grow up? I mean, that question's passed us by. We've, we've lived our lives. We've weathered the storms. We've made many difficult decisions. And the question is more along the lines of just, okay, how am I doing when I made those first decisions? And maybe we've gotten repeated warnings to turn to the left and turn to the right, but something in our brain says, well, I've already set this course. I'm just going to continue on to the end and see what happens. But I think the question still for all of us is, is what do we want to be? Who do we want to be? What is it that we want to chase with our lives? What is it that we are going to give ourselves wholeheartedly to? What's the best possible thing that we could courageously pursue? I want to read one more story. One more story about the mighty men. Another one of these amazing, short, great stories. It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 13. So here we have David still in the wilderness. It says, once during the harvest, David was at the cave of Adullam. The Philistine army was camped in the valley, and, and the three who were among the 30, an elite group among David's fighting men, went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and a Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. David remarked longingly to his men, oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. So here you have David remarking longingly. Kind of literally, it means he just sighed. Oh, if I could just get some of the water from Bethlehem. And you need to hear this. David isn't thirsty. It's not about David's thirst. You wouldn't build a stronghold that had no water source. If he was just thirsty, one of the mighty men would have tossed him his Nalgene bottle. Drink up, David. You see, David is wrestling with the promises of God. David has been anointed king. God has promised him that he would be established, that his line would continue. God had made these promises to him, and yet David finds himself all the time fleeing for his life, running in the wilderness. And he's saying, I can't even go to my hometown and get a drink of water there. So really, his lament is this, God, when will you make things right? 
God, all of these promises that you've given me, when will these promises be fulfilled? And that's more of his lament. It's not just about thirst. And so verse 16, it says, the three broke through the Philistines' line, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. And now I just wish, again, this was one of those passages that was slightly expanded. Because David sighs, and he makes this lament, and these men just immediately, okay, my king wants some water, I'm going. And so they go. Now, Bethlehem sits on a hill. And the gate is uphill. And these three are going to fight their way through, literally, the Hebrew word is a host, a company, anywhere between 80 and 100 men. And so these three fight their way through to the well. And I can just imagine what the Philistines are thinking at this point. You're coming all this way for water. There's other sources of water. And can't you see, like, two of the guys fighting off the Philistines while the one is, like, filling the thing up in the back, waiting, and these two are up, can you hurry it up back there? And he's like, I spilled some, hold on. And, and then how demoralizing for the Philistines that three guys fought all the way through to get some water and left safely. And they go back to David. It says in 16, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. David wouldn't drink it. And and don't get this picture of like the three guys going like, you did what? You poured it out? See, I think they were happy to fulfill this longing of their king. And then they were humbled that their king would pour it out as an offering to the one true king. You see, I'm sure it was encouraging to David that, wow, they could break through and do that. I'm sure it was demoralizing to the Philistines that three guys could break through just to get water. But what David was really saying when he poured that out was this. He was showing that only the Lord is worthy of such a sacrifice. Only God is worthy of sacrificing your life. He's the only thing truly worthy. And even though David was anointed king and was soon to be king of all that, he was humble enough to realize that. He was humble enough to realize that His wishes weren't the primary factor here, that there was something more important, that only God is worthy, that if we are going to have courage, it has to be courage for a cause. Only one chasing matters. And if you are going to spend yourself for something, the only thing that matters is spending yourself for Jesus. There's a couple different lenses we can look at scripture through. One of them is this. Oftentimes we read passages of scripture like this, and we read it as this kind of moralistic story. We read it to get a good moral out of it. We want to learn things that we should be doing or things that we shouldn't be doing. We read it to see characters in the Bible, ones that we want to be like and ones that we don't want to be like. And that's okay. Looking at scripture through that lens is okay. But if you look at it only through that lens, it ends up crushing you. Because as you read it, you're like, wow, those are great stories. I'm just not that great. I'm not that mighty. I can't do all of these things. You see, first and foremost, when you look at scripture, you have to look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And you have to find Jesus in the story. You have to find God's overarching purpose and plan in the story. And as we look at this story, you need to understand that every hero in scripture points to the one true hero. Every hero that we read about, all the bravery that we read about from these men and women in the Bible, they all point to Jesus. 
Because Hebrews 12 says that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. It says he's the champion who initiates and perfects what our faith is. We have a hero who is for us and with us. We have a hero who understands our size. We have a hero who desires to make things right. We have a hero that when he makes promises, he fulfills those promises. We have a hero that broke through enemy lines. We have a hero that is the living water, and he poured himself out for us. And when we look through scripture with this lens, and we see Jesus as that one, the ultimate mighty man, then we can in turn say, okay, then I will spend my life courageously chasing his cause. Because it's not about our own agenda. I don't know how many times I've gotten tripped up on my own agenda. I read a quote a few weeks back from Oswald Chambers that I've been chewing on ever since. He says this, worry rises from our determination to have our own way. Jesus never worried and was never anxious because his purpose was never to accomplish his own plans, but to fulfill God's plans. I just wish I could say that my purpose was never to accomplish my own plans, but only to fulfill the plans of God. But I know that I always trip myself up because I have things like this past week, honestly, I have a trip coming up that I'm planning for. And I was like, God, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. This needs to fall in place. You need to do this. And I really literally felt like God said, it's not your trip. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's not my trip. This is my agenda. I really want your agenda. So I was like, okay, then you deal with it. And not arrogantly, I hope. I wasn't like trying to, but just humbly, like, okay, then it's yours. God, I don't want my agenda to lead the way. I want to be courageous for his cause. I want to be courageous enough not to play it safe with my own life. I want to be courageous enough to spend myself For his cause, I want to be courageous enough to love him with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. And so this morning, I want to ask you to just pause and refocus. And I want to just kind of bring us to this point where maybe you're looking out over the edge, and maybe for you, it's the courage to stop chasing something. And I don't even need to give examples for that, because I think most of us know when we're chasing the wrong thing. And maybe for you, you're just standing at the edge and you know that you're supposed to stop and you've gotten repeated warnings to turn to the left, turn to the right, to stop chasing, but you can't do it. And maybe you need the courage today to stop chasing. Or maybe this message brings you to the edge and you just know that God is asking you to lean into something, that he's put this longing on your heart. And it's the things of him. And you've been chasing other things, but you know that this is right. And so you need to chase that. I want to give you this morning some inspiration in the form of a 10-year-old girl on a ski jump. You will never see her face in this video. She has a GoPro camera strapped to her helmet. But I think what she's wrestling with on this ski jump is exactly the same things that we wrestle with in our courageous decisions. Go ahead and watch this video. Don't do it. Here goes something, I guess. Okay, you can do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never snowplow, okay? No snowplows. Keep it straight and you'll be fine. Okay. Straight. Do you go faster on the end run? A little bit. 
a little bit. Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much. Same steepness, it's just longer. Well, just longer. Just longer, just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. Have it's fun. a bigger 20. Go ahead. You got this. I got it. <laughs> it's fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I go. Freaks yeah. you out. That's the only thing. It's so fun. Huh? 60 seems like nothing now. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that what it feels like when you're on the edge and you have every other excuse and it's crazy intimidating? And yet, may we have the courage like these mighty men and women knowing that the one true hero has gone before us and has sacrificed himself for us. And so may we spend our lives courageously chasing Jesus in his goals. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the stories in your word. Thank you for the courage that we see in scripture. Thank you for the men and women who were faithful, who followed hard after you. And as we read their stories, may we be encouraged. May they give us courage. And I pray that you would give us courage this morning to relentlessly pursue your cause. And Jesus, thank you for chasing us. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for us. Thank you that you are the one true hero. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.